it's dark. In the words of Dennis Hopper, isn't that right, Tim? That's right. Yeah, from Blue Velvet. An upcoming podcast that you can uh, stay tuned for. Um, but we're going to be talking about something a little different today. The Oscars have right. just wrapped up, well, a few days ago. Yeah, a couple of days ago we had the the Oscars. The year 2019 really come to a close. That's right. And the big news coming out of the Oscars is Parasite winning Best Picture, the first non-English film to do so. Bong Joon-ho's film, of course. We've talked about that a little bit on the podcast before in reference to Us, Jordan Peele's Us. That's right. The episode is Why Parasite Succeeds and Us Fails. So you can go back and check that out. That's right. Uh, And instead of getting into the film itself so much, we kind of wanted to get into the Oscars a little bit, but mostly talk about the consequences for Parasite's victory, both on the Academy's relationship to international film, the media coverage of Parasite, and I guess just some of the questions that are lingering from, from all this, because I think there, in one sense, has rightly been a lot of praise yeah. for this accomplishment. I mean, I, I was hoping that Roma last year would have been the first non-English film to win Best Picture. Yeah, and likewise, I was hoping last year that Burning would be the first Korean movie to be ah, nominated. Ah, Yi Chang-dong. Yeah, yeah. the Yi Chang-dong movie. Um, I'm, I'm very happy with Parasite and the success that Parasite is having. But I was kind of hoping that if there is one Korean movie that should be it to start this, it should be burning. Right. But better late than never. Well, my thoughts are kind of triplicate on this. I mean, on the one hand, the impact that I'm seeing it have already on social media, uh, it has been good in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, just what it says for international filmmakers, filmmakers in other countries, being like, oh, okay, this is a possibility now. I, I've seen posts by people, directors in other countries, saying like, okay, this is a very inspiring thing. Yeah. And uh, also for Korea. I mean, I just know a lot of people here who have been really kind of over the moon about this victory. Yeah, it, it kind of felt when Parasite won, I mean, in the really, in the immediate aftermath, it kind of had this sort of World Cup kind of feel to it yeah. in the air. There's just a lot of people were just just so proud and I felt strangely proud of my adopted home, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, because that's where we both live and so we just, you know, we're in it. We're right in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. It's hard not to be happy on Korea's behalf for the win. Uh, I would say the other part of my mind is thinking, well, this wasn't my favorite film of the year. Okay. You know, and... I guess that critical side of me thought like, because last year Roma was my favorite film of the year. Yeah, and I part of me kind of started thinking on my own criticisms of Parasite as a film because it is a very good film, and I think it, it's a film. It's hard to question its its victory as best picture, um, but some of the more you know sort of effusive praise for the film has been a little bit over the top. Right. Best film of the millennium. <laughs> Masterpiece. Perfect. Yeah. My reaction to that has kind of been, well, it's very good, but yeah. it does have flaws. I think it is an example of a very good Korean movie. Oh, a very good movie, period. It is a very good movie, yes, but I, I put the Korean there because it is a very good example of what Korean cinema is. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, that's what I mean. Like, it's a very good Korean movie. It really gives you that Korean... Um, that Korean flavor, that Korean style, but it's not necessarily my favorite Korean movie that I've ever seen either, but I'm still very happy with it. I do think it was a very good movie, but yeah, I, I kind of wonder if the the praise that is being lauded on it might be because this might be the first time people have seen a Korean movie. Perhaps. 
you know, and it's playing into a discourse about the lack of diversity and things like that. Yeah. Uh, just to unpack for a minute what you mean by Korean there, I think we both kind of get what you're saying there. Right. Uh, but for me, at least, it means uh, a blending of different genres and mm-hmm. an ability to shift tones, yep. uh, sometimes successfully as in Parasites, sometimes unsuccessfully as in a lot of Korean movies, like, say, uh, A Bittersweet Life. Yeah. You know, or The Good, The Weird, and The, the Ugly, uh, where the just good, kind of... The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. Yeah. That's right. Um where it just kind of seems to jump all over the place and it becomes a like, let's just throw anything at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a pretty outrageous movie. Yeah. But yeah, the Korean flavor as well is usually really gritty. It's usually quite violent, often deals with issues like class as well, in particular the movies of Bong Joon-ho. And uh, kind of resentment, mm-hmm. uh, the desire for revenge. There is a lot of darkness and grittiness there, but also a lot of stylistic sort of uh, flourish. Yes. And... We see that on display in, in in Parasite, I think, in quite an elegant way. That's the word that keeps coming to my mind in terms of describing the style. Yeah. So in that sense, I would kind of describe it as, as maybe the most elegant example of this Korean style. Yeah, and that's what I mean as well when I say it's a very good Korean movie. Right. And so every year, you know, I watch a, mo- a Korean movie and I think, well, that was great. I mm-hmm. love Korean cinema. Parasite right. was another time I watched it and said, that was awesome. I love Korean cinema. Korean cinema is, is great. Right. But I don't think it is the the end-all, be-all of Korean cinema. Right. I mean, my mind is specifically focusing on three things that um, we didn't really get into in our first kind of take on Parasite because yeah. I think it was so, still so fresh in our minds. But mm-hmm. I've had a chance to read more about it, to talk with friends about it, to, to get other people's thoughts and opinions. And probably the biggest weakness of the film, it's something kind of like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that fundamental flaw where it's like, you know, if Indiana Jones would have just stayed home, the exact same thing would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's kind of like one of those things where, I, yeah, that, that's true. That's true. I've never thought of that before. It's not necessarily a weakness in the film. It's just kind of like one of those things of like, well, that just totally destroys the whole motivation for him going outside. My gosh, you're right. If the, if he had just not gone out, the Nazis would have just opened it anyway. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But, you know, what that's fun really is funny. that? No, yeah, no, that's funny. I, I can't believe I've never heard that before. Uh, there is a pretty big structural flaw in terms of Parasite. Okay. And it's this. How can a family who is ends up being so ruthlessly cunning and apparently so kind of naturally gifted or mm-hmm. talented at just, you know, tricking people, manipulating people, and ruthlessly uh, pursuing that, how can they be so poor at the beginning? Mm. And how can they be reduced to folding pizza boxes to make a living when they have these this incredible talent for ripping people off? Yeah, I've, I've heard you express that question before. And I've never heard a good explanation for that. Uh, well, that's that's true. I can give it a shot. Uh, it could be a matter of opportunity. If they are, in fact, economically downtrodden, then maybe they have not had the opportunity to showcase their skills. But the first chance that they get, they totally destroy it. And well, that's, that's that <laughs> is know. their that is their chance, and they take it. I don't know. I just have a hard time believing that you know the Song Gang Ho, fa- the father character, could have gone through his whole life and never seized on that opportunity before. Or that, you know, you have five incredibly manipulative, cunning sort of criminals in one household, or or four, sorry, and they just can't do anything. They can't think of anything to kind of get themselves out of this. Well, I suppose it it starts off very gradually, though. It's just one one of the family members who gets a job, Mm -hmm. and then... You know, so, oh well, that's lucky. I can get my I can get my sister involved now too, and then it just sort of snowballs from there. 
I know, but it's one of those things where you have to explain it. It's never <laughs> really tied up in the film. Right. And for me, it just it's left unanswered. Mm. Um, it's one of the, the kind of criticisms I have of the Korean New Wave in general, where yeah. I think we're kind of asked to, to go along with changes in character, uh, and the characterization sometimes isn't always the most organic. Sometimes characters seem to change in a dime based on their situations and the demands of the story, the narrative. And oftentimes that's kind of papered over by style. Yeah. You know? And in this film, it's done elegantly. And I think the craft is this kind of impeccable mix of, of Steven Spielberg and Alfred Hitchcock. But those character questions remain. Uh, a- another kind of glaring point that I, I noticed was when the rich family goes away on a camping trip and the poor family is kind of just pigging out in their household. Yeah, yeah. And they suddenly get word that they're coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they clean everything up really quickly. The family gets home. Now, up until this point, we've been led to believe that this rich family is is fairly observant mm-hmm. of things. Like they they would notice if you know the floor is dirty, if yeah. it hasn't been swept, if things are out of place, and yet they don't seem to notice anything. Well, those are some interesting points, though. I can't say I ever sort of thought of them while I was watching them. It's the sort of thing my mind gradually shifts <laughs> towards when somebody says something is perfect. Right, right. You know. I mean, perfect is a very strong word. I try to not use it too often. Right. And there are only a couple of movies that I sort of say so, and I'm always ready to defend it whenever someone asks me to. Right, because um, I know you've said, like, for example, the first Lord of the Rings is a perfect film. Yes, right. or a perfect, at least a perfect action movie, you right. know, in, in that sense. And I'll even, I might even sort of uh, change it to, to fit that mold. I just, I, I right. rarely use that word. Um, but... The, the the my I guess if I had a criticism of of the Korean Korean movies, it's often just this this often inappropriate mix of comedy with real solemnity. Sometimes right. I think it can be pretty funny and and strange, like in uh, in in the host, which is another Bong Joon Ho movie, mm-hmm. where they're just wailing over all of these lost victims from this monster attack, right. And then they start. Then they hear this announcement of someone who's parked badly, and then they start crying over that because they're just <laughs> they're so they're just so just out of their minds with grief, I guess. And that's silly and fun. But then in something like the TV drama Sky Castle, it's it's really not good to me. It's just it, you go through this really dramatic opening credits, mm-hmm. and then there's this this dad like two minutes in who's just this total comic relief character and totally yeah. kills the mood. Yeah, um, some of the over-the-top elements. I think it's both what people love about it and what some people don't like about it. And I like it sometimes, and sometimes I don't. Yeah, right. I guess it depends on which what the context is, I guess. And the style of Parasite is is pretty impeccable. I mm-hmm. mean, there's been a number of kind of reviews of the film that have focused on the mon- montages in the film and how perfectly executed they are. Um, I sometimes feel like the style becomes a little bit overwhelming yeah. uh, to the point where I don't feel so much for the characters. Yeah. But that's a matter of opinion. I know other people who responded very positively to the film. Yeah. Overall, though, I think the Academy made a great choice. I just think it was a very strong year in general for the nominees. And the ones who weren't nominated, too. Yeah. I mean, there were just a lot of great films this year. There were a lot of great films this year. And... I, I mean, when I, I, I like to rank the movies and things like that. Right. So I ranked all the Best Picture nominees, and Jojo Rabbit was my lowest ranked. Right. And I still like Jojo Rabbit a lot. Yeah. I I'm, still thought it was great. Uh, I would say the third thing 
that my mind is kind of going towards is more this big picture thing mm-hmm. about what Parasite means and what the other nominees say about you know the state of filmmaking right now. Yeah. I mean, we can kind of tackle the the Parasite question first because obviously it's a great thing for a, a non-English language film to win this. It's very groundbreaking. Yeah, it's 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 really cool to be a part of the breakthrough too. Absolutely, but it does come with a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the questions being, if best picture, the best picture category starts including international non-English language films, what is the point of the best international feature category? Right, because then you could ask the, the question as well, if there's a movie that's nominated for best picture and a movie that's nominated for, and another movie that's nominated for international feature, I mean, yeah. could they be different? Like the one that's nominated for best picture wins best picture but loses the international feature it's a weird thing to think about but it's possible yeah certainly possible but highly unlikely i think so uh uh, probably a bigger question is if it becomes kind of the norm for best or the best picture category to include international films how in the world do you choose from all the great films out there and narrow it down to five or ten I mean, they already do that for these five movies a year, but I mean, they're they're usually done more by countries choosing from their own. Well, that selection. gets into some of the ar- arcane rules of the best international feature film category. Yeah, otherwise known as the best foreign language film category. Right. Because I've looked into this a little bit. It's pretty problematic in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Uh, for one. You know, each country gets to choose the film that they want to select and and yeah. offer up to the Academy members to choose. And it's just one. They're not allowed to choose anything else. That's right. Yeah. And so, as has happened in the past, you you might have a film which is critical of the government, which the government deems inappropriate mm-hmm. or, you know, dangerous in some way, and they don't want to nominate it that. They don't want to select that for the best Oscar, international feature. So, that movie gets kind of thrown by the wayside. Yep. And that's very problematic when you allow politics to enter into this. Um, you know, France, for example, makes it known which team of people is selecting their best international uh, feature for sure. the Oscars. China doesn't. Right, and China has a habit of pulling their movies out of film festivals and things like that. Yep. But, you know, if the Academy were to choose a Chinese movie, for instance, that the government disapproved of, I kind of wonder... You know, I don't know. I don't don't know if this has ever happened. I, I don't think I've heard of anything happening like this, where a country sort of rejects it and says, or objects and says, "Hey, no, no, please don't don't nominate that. We don't want that." Well, and I mean, would the Academy listen? Another interesting thing to think about too is what if, following the arcane rules of the best international feature category, a country selects a movie that it wants to be nominated. And then in the best picture category, you get a film from that same country that they didn't want nominated. <laughs> so then you have this war. Let's say, for example, in Russia, there's a very yeah. anti-Putin film which gets nominated for best picture, and yet their selection is not that film. Mm-hmm. And so they might be a little upset. They could be. And then they could theoretically both win in their That's respective right. categories, and that would be strange. It would, Yeah, you would have a government-approved film and then an anti-government film, yeah. which both win. And I just can't imagine that going over well. No, but again, I suppose it is possible unless unless we're missing some sort of detail that really only insiders know. I don't think so. Because, yeah. uh, I, I mean, another rule which has generated some controversy is that these films for Best International Feature, they have to be 
primarily in a language other than English. It's it's a certain percentage. It's it's not like a hundred percent, but it needs to right. be mostly mostly in English, like sixty to seventy percent or something. And this attracted a lot of controversy this year because Nigeria's official entry Lionheart was disqualified because it was mostly in English, mm-hmm. even though that's Nigeria's official language. Yeah, and they you know they they only did that because the Academy changed their name of that category, but they just didn't change the rules. Right. Which and which makes it muddy. Why is English Nigeria's official language? Because they were colonized. Yeah, right. And I know mm-hmm. I don't know who it was, but it was someone associated with the Lionheart movie who said we can't we can't help what what language our colonizers spoke. That's right. And it's a good point, though, because if you're talking about international feature, a movie from Nigeria will will never be featured there if right. English is the official language, and that's a shame. Well, and this whole rule was introduced to keep films from the U.K. and Canada and Australia right. from dominating. And I think that's a good intention if you want to— to showcase movies from other countries that don't speak English. But then, yeah, countries like Nigeria do get left out. Well, and just think of the absurdity of, for example, The Lord of the Rings being nominated for Best International Feature right. Film. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's... if the category has one purpose, it's to introduce overlooked films from other countries. Right, right, And right. it's certainly not to get a, a mainstream movie like that, as good as it is, some more publicity. No, you're right. That would, that would have been ridiculous. Right. That would have been very silly. So, I mean, there's a lot of problems just in that category alone with Best International Feature, let alone, you know, the questions that remain for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the categorization itself, the rules around it are, are really questionable. And I think it's both exciting that Parasite has kind of opened the doors for more international films, but it also leaves a lot of questions, too. Yeah. Um, there's also the whole issue of money. And just, I, I, okay, I'll preface this by saying... I've been reading some of the press response to Parasite. Okay. And it's been overwhelmingly effusive. And I side with that for the most part, you right. know, despite my criticisms. But I think one of the the issues that the press is having is that they're kind of trying to find a narrative with the Oscars this year. You know, certain people, and we've talked about this before, have noted that class consciousness seems to be a big thing with, say, you know, us... Uh, Parasite, Joker, yeah. a number of other films. That's a, a pretty big theme woven into a lot of these movies. That's or right. A lot of movies this year in general, yeah. Right. Uh, I think in the lead up to the Oscars, and even in the follow up, diversity has been the big thing. Yep. For the last few years, it's kind of been the big critique, the big narrative that that's right. most of the establishment press has pushed. Yeah, that's right. Even uh, Natalie Portman at the Academy Awards wore a dress, and inside her dress were names of all the all, a lot of female directors who were snubbed. So right. everyone is thinking about it, whether you are a, an A-list celebrity or some someone on a computer. Right. And I think, in a weird way, the discussion around Parasite misses the moment, misses mm-hmm. our political moment. On the one hand, I mean... An international film, a non-English language film getting nominated is great, and class discussion is great. But if that is only kind of celebrated because of diversity and not class, Mm. I think it kind of misses the mark in a way. Right. There's more than one issue at hand. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And I think in a weird way, uh, the reason why Parasite was able to kind of get in and, and be so celebrated and, you know, mount this successful Oscar campaign. Because, I mean, it is pretty expensive for, for a film to, you know, mount an Oscar campaign. Yeah. I think Netflix spent like $100 million 
I mean, some of its films. Boy, they yeah, they they spent well over a hundred million dollars to make The Irishman, for instance. Right. Yeah. Uh, Neon, the production company behind Parasite, spent around four to five million on their Oscar campaign alone for Parasite, and nice. around fifteen to seventeen million on press and advertising and this is considered kind of a modest amount right right and you know neon is i think we talk about neon like we talk about a24 right you know, even just, though they're pretty new right yeah they are pretty new but in addition to parasite you know they did portrait of a lady on fire right for instance and i think they're kind of more in the a24 blumhouse type size and oh they make stability. exciting films yeah they make they make great movies yeah, and there's also this whole publicity angle, too. I mean, in order for a film to get considered, they have to mount a, a massive sort of publicity campaign. Uh, I read that Bong Joon-ho and his family actually moved to L.A. in January to start doing press mm, for, okay. for Parasite. Yeah. And the movie benefited from this kind of media campaign, which, I mean, they hire consultants on this. It's not just something that comes organically. It's It's very much engineered to kind of mesh with the narratives of the day. And I think they kind of found this sweet spot to kind of position this as a film, you know, challenging the lack of diversity mm -hmm. in Hollywood right. and in the Oscar nominations this year. I, I read that their unofficial slogan for their campaign was, if not now, when? Interesting. Okay. Right? right. So on the one hand, it's a movie about class, but it's getting celebrated mostly for diversity mm -hmm. in America. And I think that highlights a problem that movies about class in America have faced, whether mm -hmm. it's us or whether it's Joker, and that if you want to make a movie about class in America, you pretty much have to make it about race, too. Right, because I guess if you make it about class without the race issue in the background, you may not get the, the answers that you're looking for, and then you might face the backlash like Joker did. Well, right. It just leaves a big question mark of like, okay, well, you're going to have this movie about a, a white guy mm -hmm. who's poor and has mental illness, but, you know, these people have it worse. Right. And that's kind of sometimes the self-defeating thing that this narrative can, you know, the, uh, the consequences of this narrative. Um, I think the, the problem there is that because there are so many things that a film about class and race has to tackle, I mean... I think maybe one of the reasons why Us didn't necessarily work is because it just had so much on its plate. Yeah. This is something my friend Jim pointed out. It's like he made a really good point that not only did this movie have to deal with, you know, class conflict, but it also had to deal with, say, African-American guilt mm -hmm. over, like, certain people becoming upper class and other people being left behind. Right. You know, so there is also a racial angle to that. That's hard to deal with. It's just a lot for one movie to have to to sort through. Well, I think that's a big reason of what made us so muddled in the in the first place. Right. But what's interesting about Parasite is that at the very beginning of the Cannes Film Festival, Bong Joon Ho had no expectation to win the Palme d'Or because he said, "Well, this movie is so Korean, I just don't think anyone's going to understand it outside right. of Korea." And now here we are. It's the most the most successful. Korean movie internationally and uh, right. I just I guess I don't know what he was talking about I mean it is quite Korean in the sense that I can relate to what the people go through just because it's you know stuff that I see every day living here but it's also I just think that everyone has class issues as well every country sort of has its own its own stuff like that to to go through if not every country then most countries and so class is and always has been a universal issue well, and he's he's pointed this out on several occasions. I think w in the American media environment, it makes it tough 
to, to deal with that. And in a weird way, I almost think like it's easier to outsource mm. that problem to another country, to another right. film. Uh, I think Parasite didn't have to deal with race. So that they could focus more just on class. Yeah, it made it easier for that film to do what it had to do. Whereas, like Joker, I mean, we've talked about the the brutal reactions to that. that <laughs> that's right. That's our other podcast you can go listen to in defense of Joker. Right. And that's when you can go check that out right now. And you know, media campaigns, uh, media narratives, uh, I think affect the Oscars a lot. They they affect the Academy and the way that the Academy votes and and the public discussion around it. So I'm sure that. You know, it made it easier for Parasite to win because mm-hmm. it didn't have to muddle through these difficult waters. Well, you're absolutely right because it was not that long ago when La La Land was dominating everything. And right. I guess it's a mix of media and awards backlash and La La Land fatigue over exposure and whatnot. And the Oscars So White thing, uh, Moonlight eventually came out as the winner. Yeah. And it is interesting to think that in a weird way, it's a it's the perfect environment for like a for a movie like Parasite to come in. Yeah. Um, I I still think, though, that, you know, while diversity remains a huge issue in Hollywood, the real sacred cows of Hollywood continue to be money. Yeah. Money and kind of the publicity machine, the the media environment. I mean, I, I was doing some research and I, I didn't actually really know the full story about this before, but okay. you know, when Louis B. Mayer kind of set up the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, he did it largely to prevent unions from forming. Oh no way! Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, apparently, he was he was looking to build a beach house. Mm-hmm. He wanted to hire some people from the studios okay. to, to help some craftspeople to help him build this, and he's like, huh, well, I. I you know, I can see, I can hear rumblings of potential unions being formed. Mm. And I want to just nip this in the bud. So it's like, I'm going to separate the the artists, the artistes yeah. from the lowly craftsmen by giving, you know, setting up this academy, giving it a fancy name with lots of prestige, you know, yeah, yeah. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and um, kind of separate the artistes from the, the craftsmen by giving the, art, the artists awards. You know, right. and celebrating their craft and giving them these fancy trophies. Hmm. So it, it was very self-serving. Right. So the whole reason why we do the Oscars every year is because a rich guy wanted to build a beach house. And save some money and, and pre- some... prevent people from asking for health care and stuff like that. Yeah, wow, that's nuts. I mean, but I'm not surprised at all. They did eventually end up forming guilds, you know, the Writers right. Guild and Directors Guild and stuff like sure. that. But. It is interesting that, you know, the whole the basis of the Academy is rooted in sort of class exploitation. Yeah, and here we go. Parasite, a movie all about class exploitation and, and class differences and whatnot, wins the Academy Award for that. I know. Yeah. I, I still think the ultimate barrier to, to getting a movie into the Academy, though, and, and getting it nominated is going to be money. It's going to yeah. be... Getting enough. I mean, a few years ago, we saw a movie called The Work, a documentary at, at Biff. Oh, yeah. And talking to people around that film and, and talking to people who worked in documentary film festivals is like, well, it's not going to get nominated because it just doesn't have enough money for a campaign. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. And I, I read something about one of the when, when Denzel Washington won an Oscar, he knew he was going to win quite far in advance. Right. I guess the campaign had just been going in a way where he just he just knew. Well, and they will, you know, spend a lot of money getting this movie in, you know, talked about. They'll have, you know, talk show appearances set up for all the main yeah. people. They'll be whining and dining Academy members. I mean, there's there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. And I think that's why a movie like, say, The Lighthouse yep. didn't get nominated, because it just didn't have enough of a 
enough money behind it and enough of a publicity campaign. Yeah, I'd say Uncut Gems is probably another one just like that. And I guess at the end of the day, the relevance and the importance of the Oscars is this. The Oscars allow good movies to be made because there is a lot of money involved in the Oscars. Right. And a lot of movies that get greenlit are done so with the promise or the potential of winning an Oscar in the first place. Oh, yeah. Movies see huge ticket boosts or huge sales boosts yeah. uh, after they get Oscar nominations, and especially if they get Best Picture. Right. But even just the chance of winning an Oscar means, well, you know what? We, we can make this movie. Because right. it could win an Oscar. And I think that's why the Oscars are important in general. It's not, you know, I don't, who, following who wins and who's nominated and stuff is just something fun I like to do. I don't really put that much credence into it, but it, they are important because, number one, they nominate, they do nominate good movies usually. Right. They do nominate good movies at least. And so if you are looking for something to watch, then you can go go ahead and take a look at what's been nominated. But also, more importantly, they allow the Hollywood movie scene, at least, to not just be schlock. Right. Right, because a lot of the good movies are made with the hopes of winning an Oscar. I I think another sacred cow, though, here is the aesthetic conservatism Mm -hmm. of the the Academy. I mean, I think another reason why a movie like The Lighthouse, for example, didn't get nominated, or that international film, Atlantique, is because they're aesthetically challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're different from the usual fare, and I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. I don't think the nominees this year really did a lot to change that. Yeah, you're you're probably right about that. I'm trying to think of the last time a movie that was really r- taking a lot of risks and challenges and things like that uh, kind of came anywhere close to to an Oscar. I mean, Moonlight maybe, but at the same time, it's not quite like The Lighthouse, which is sh- shot in such a weird aspect ratio or. Yeah, it it was a great film, uh, and it was stylistically very interesting, but it wasn't as weird as, say, like even 2001, no, for example, no, where the, that didn't get nominated for a lot of categories. And I wouldn't call Moonlight, Moonlight's aesthetic or Moonlight's cinematography out there. Yeah. Yeah, but something I, I would like just say Lighthouse. it's very well done within a sp- uh, sort of niche of filmmaking that includes like Wong Gar Wai and, yeah. you know, a certain style. Yeah. Uh, listen, before we wrap up here, I thought it'd be good to just quickly give our top 10 of the year. Yeah, I can do that right now. I've got it uh, right here. I've been ranking 2019 movies all year. Ah, right. It's just something that I just I just like making lists. I'm like yeah. Liam Neeson in that TV show, Life's Too Short. Like, <laughs> I just make lists all the time. Do you, want, do you want to start with 10? Yeah, I can go into my top 10. Some of these are the Oscar-nominated movies, and some of them are not. So, for instance, yeah. Jojo Rabbit does not make my top 10. My number 10 movie is what I think was maybe the most purely entertaining movie of the of the batch, and it was Ford v. Ferrari. That was my number 10. See, that, I've been wrestling with myself all day whether to include that in my top 10 or not, because yeah. I was so entertained by this, too. Yep. Uh, and I think entertainment does have a lot of value, obviously. Yep. So I'm going to put it in my top ten. I just, I loved, a, I loved so much of this. Just I love the 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 handmade cars and the fragility of that, and how fast they're going, and how as someone who is not a race car enthusiast, I was still hooked. Yeah, this is what Hollywood movies should be. I think just so yep. entertaining. Yep. Uh, my number 10 will be Atlantique, mm-hmm. which uh, won pretty big at Cannes this year, yeah. and uh, is such a tonally interesting and bizarre film. I mean, just kind of the the mix of genres that it has. It, it kind of reminds me of, uh, reminded me of Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, yeah. just in terms of the weird place it gets to. And uh, I usually like to leave the, the 
category or the number 10 to something different that was really challenging. Yeah, okay. And so I'm going to include Atlantique. My number nine is Gisengchung, Parasite. Aha. Uh-huh. So the best picture winner of the year makes it into my top 10, but only just, and at number nine. Okay, well, I'm going to go with number nine, Midsummer. Okay. Ari Aster's film. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. Midsommar. Ari Aster. Midsommar by. Ari Aster. Aster. Yeah. We got a lot of flack for that. We've been reminded of that several times. Yeah. Um, I said I want to make an apology uh, an apology podcast where we just keep calling him A-Rai. <laughs> A-Rai Astier. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so that is your, yeah, that's my number 12. I still, I really liked it. I really love Mids, Midsommar. Uh, my number eight is The Two Popes. Oh, okay, cool. Which, again, I thought was very entertaining, but... The acting in it, and I come from an acting background, so I just respect it so much. I, I just love the performances and the chemistry between the two actors in this. Fantastic. With uh, Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins were both fantastic. Cool. Um, my number eight is Joker. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I really enjoyed Joker. I think, you know, talking with people in, you know, the the weeks after we did our podcast. Yeah has maybe reconsidered some aspects of it. I do think there are some major writing flaws, and I do think there are parts of it where it, it becomes a little bit too, I guess, down in the dumps, where it doesn't have uh, enough of kind of a, a tonal balance. Oh, with, man. Yeah, it's bleak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think it's it's highlights just overpower it. Yeah. I mean, there's so many good moments, especially at the end when he's when he's on the Murray show. The shock of that, and also the political relevance of it, just for kind of capturing the zeitgeist of of this sort of like anti-establishment anger. Yeah, uh, made it more than worth it. And also, I just love that critics hated it. <laughs> and so I know that really made me want to include it on the list. No, I agree with you. I think critics and people on social media just didn't get it at all. Well, certain people You did. and I'm, I are the only two people who got it. <laughs> you two are the only... Yeah, I mean, it did get 11 Oscar nominations yeah. and, you know, made over a billion dollars. So yeah, that's it's, right. I think it's doing fine. Yeah. Uh, my number seven is Little Women, the Greta Gerwig movie. Me too. Uh, oh, yeah, you too as well. Yeah. I just... Um, the, it's the same things that to me made... Lady Bird's so wonderful. It's just the human aspect and the human relationships, the interpersonal relationships. I love how Greta Gerwig shows people interacting with each other. Yeah. Uh, the the highs and lows that people go through. It, her stories are so very human. Absolutely. And I, I think the sort of feminist take on it uh, or the feminist touches that she had in the film were really balanced with the, with the humanism. Yeah. Um, there are so many shots where it's... It's obviously lingering on people who the cameras, it's just kind of dripping with empathy. Yeah. You know, for example, a father who lost his two sons in the war. Yeah. And it's clear that this guy doesn't have a lot, you know, and just kind of the the empathy that Laura Dern's character has for him. Yeah. Is is a sign that, you know, I think the movie's really kind of, it has a sort of universalistic, humanistic value Mm -hmm. set that, um, you know, in our sort of identitarian uh you know present it's kind of been lost this yeah. idea of like you should just kind of have empathy with people i i agree and i like the comedy in it too um, right. the the guy that the the book guy uh that mr dashwood that's that's played by Tra- uh, tracy letts was a uh, quite a fun comedic a uh, comedic thread in the whole thing it's been a good year for tracy letts he was also in ford versus ferrari oh yeah that's right i did yeah. forget about that yeah he's henry ford the second yeah 
<laughs> uh, yeah, and the production design in this, uh, just the the Christmases that they have, man, mm. do they look amazing? Yeah, they look really beautiful, and all those feasts and stuff that they were that yeah they were taking part in. So that's your that's both of our number numbers seven. Yeah, uh, my number six is Pain and Glory. Ah, Pedro my, Almodovar. Yeah, Pedro Almodovar. So that is a foreign language movie that I ranked higher than Parasite. Right. I wonder if how recently I watched movies kind of influences my rankings of them because a lot of times, well, because a lot of times I'll, I'll say, okay, well, I just saw this movie. I kind of group it in this area, but is it higher than this? Is it lower than this? And then I'll place it. But pain and glory. I just, I really love the performances in it. Again, the colors are, are fantastic because I mean, it's so beautiful to look at Pedro Almodovar and something that I realized is that it made me feel very grateful for the life that I live. Absolutely. This is just a, a part in his life as a child where he and his family have to go live in a cave. And yeah. I just, I, watch, I, I like watching stuff like that that just sort of makes me take a moment and just appreciate the life that I live and that I don't have to live in a cave. Yeah. That it, does mean a lot to me. It reminded me of a more character driven Fellini film. Yeah. Because there are parts of it where they're almost surrealistic in how kind of bizarre it is. Like yeah. when they are going to live in that cave. Yeah. You know? And in a way, he's happier as a child living in that cave as a very as he is than he oh, is yeah. as a very successful adult. What he's, an incredible performance. Too. An incredible performance by Antonio Banderas. Yeah. I'm I, I do love Again, acting, great acting performances can really boost movies for me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, my number six is not actually a feature film. Mm. It's a 15-minute film called Anima, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, featuring the music of Tom York. Oh, good. Yes. And uh, choreography by Damien Jallet, who did the choreography in Suspiria. And it features Tom York himself as this kind of... Uh, you know, guy living in this almost Orwellian world, you know, where everyone's kind of going about their day and he sees a, a woman who leaves her, uh, I believe, her lunchbox behind and he's just trying to catch up with her and return it to her. And it kind of turns into this very fantastical thing that almost reminded me of Fantasia in parts, the, the way they do the lighting. And yeah. uh, the, the choreography is incredible. Um, and this is someone who, A, can't dance and B, knows nothing about dance. Mm-hmm. Um, both in, in this and Suspiria, Damien Jelle is just incredible. I mean, he just really makes you feel what dancing can accomplish. It's all about movement, yeah. you know? And man, is this movie effective. Tom York's actually a great actor, too. And Paul Thomas Anderson just continues to be a master at using kind of naturalistic, organic ways to get at something surreal and kind of otherworldly. Yeah. And there are parts of this where the setup is so simple and yet the feeling you get, the, the the world that it puts you in, it's just so something that no CGI creation could do. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I usually abhor CGI yeah. in a lot of things. And it's not necessarily the CGI, but more the way that it's used right. in a lot of in a lot of movies these days yep. uh, that I that I really dislike. My number five, we're getting into the top half now. My number five is The Lighthouse. Uh-huh. Robert Eggers, The Lighthouse. So that makes it to my number five. Out of the young directors that we talk about, primarily Ari Aster and Robert Eggers, and we go into Jennifer Kent, mm-hmm. for instance, I think Robert Eggers is... Uh, Jordan Peele, how can I forget him? Jordan Peele as well. Robert Eggers is probably the one I'm most excited about. Yeah. And this comes after two movies that all of those directors have had. Oh, he's great. Yeah, and I just... I love his attention to detail, the tiny little details like the... like. Having the characters in The Witch, for instance, they must speak in this very specific dialect. And having the two characters in The Lighthouse speaking in these two very different but very real and authentic dialects and things. His attention to meticulous detail is what makes his 
world building so excellent. I totally agree. Uh, my number five was Uncut Gems, mm-hmm. the new Safdie Brothers film. Yep. Just from start to finish, it's just relentlessly exciting. Yeah. Kind of like Good Time, where you see Adam Sandler in maybe his best performance of his career. I mean, I thought Punch Drunk Love would be it. Apparently not. Yeah. I well, mean, this might be better. It shows you what he's got when he makes an effort. <laughs> and when he's working with a good directorial team. Yeah. Because they really know how to kind of get to this gritty underworld and it almost becomes mythical how, mm-hmm. how much they build this into something bigger than just, you know, the grimy streets of New York. And yeah. they are masters at finding, you know, this district of jewel shops and this one alley and this these areas that really tie together into the side of New York that you don't usually see. Yeah. Usually you see, you know, like uh, skyscrapers and luxury apartments and stuff. Here you see desperation. Yeah. And... I believe in our last podcast with Kelly, you said, you won't need to sit down. That's so true. <laughs> yeah, just on edge all the time. It also had maybe the best soundtrack of mm-hmm. the year by Daniel Lopatin. So um, this is fantastic. And maybe I should have put it higher in the list. I'm already thinking I should have. But. Well, um, it's a top five is still pretty good. That's right. Uh, in a number four, uh, I think my favorite, um, one of my favorite movies of the year was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, right. This is Quentin Tarantino's tribute to New Hollywood and the 1960s, and it's so great. Um, There are parts of current trend Tarantino I don't really like. I've never Mm -hmm. been a fan of Inglorious Bastards, for instance. Yeah, me neither. I like parts of Django Unchained. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't like The Hateful Eight. Out of those movies, I think The Hateful Eight is probably my favorite, mostly just because it's just been the one that's been most different and the most interesting. It's almost like a stage play. Right. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, to me, is just peak Quentin Tarantino. The humor is there, the... The thrilling ending is there. The mm-hmm. the characters are there too, and right. um, I I just I liked everything about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The runtime didn't bother me whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, and every everything was everyone was great in it. It was just such a good time. Well, uh, my number four is actually 1917, okay. the new Sam Mendes film. Mm-hmm. Uh, just on a technical level, uh, astounding. Yeah, the fact that you had Roger Deakins pulling off. A movie that looked like it was shot in one take, even though it wasn't. Yeah. But, I mean, there were so many long takes in this where you had, you know, planes flying in the background and you had these incredibly elaborate set designs yeah. and you had people doing rather difficult action sequences. And the, then you had rats yeah. who had to come in on cue. And you had, you know, so many things that could go wrong, so many moving parts, and they were so well executed in these beautiful shots. Um, as well, it was just like Little Women... Kind of a, a movie that that is very universalistic. It is. It's amazing to me that there could be a war movie that a doesn't shirk from the the horrors of war, and this being World War One, mm-hmm. but b avoids sentimentality. Yes, and this movie does both of those things while also pulling out these amazing technical feats. Um, it was just stunning. A, yeah. a great piece of filmmaking. No, I'll agree with you because that's my number three. Right, 1917 is my number three. I'm not going to go into much more detail because you've already gone into it. But um, even though I thought there was some, f- sometimes some filler in the screenplay, the technical achievements were great enough that I was amazed uh, by everything that was going on. I l- just absolutely loved walking through the trenches. I yes. could have spent that entire movie just looking at all the extras in the background. All yeah. the extras had something to do. They were all sleeping. They were all eating. They were all talking. It was just a living, breathing world. And yeah. like they're all sitting on these boxes and these bags and everything. There's, it's just he just created that 
in such an, a marvelous way. And the ending, uh, which I'm not going to spoil because if you haven't seen it, it's remarkable. Um, the ending is, is, is fantastic. And oh, yeah. Because you go back into the trenches. And the, the feeling that they evoke in the audience is totally earned. Yes. There isn't a, a, a hint of sentimentality, really, in this. It's, if there is, it's sentiment. It's real sentiment. It's not sentimentality. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So 1917 is my number three. That was what I was thinking would win Best Picture, as I mentioned on uh, the previous podcast that we did. I would have been, like I said, with any of these movies nominated, I think I would have been happy. I was like, all right, that was a very deserving choice. It's not like Crash, where you're like, ugh. No. Maybe not Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. That would have been maybe a, a puzzling choice. A bit of a stretch. A bit of a stretch. But yes, um, 1917, beautiful movie. My number three is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. What I was impressed with by this film was how Tarantino, he seems to evolve or have evolved to this new level of screenwriting where he is seemingly having people just living their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a day in the life sort of movie. And you see Brad Pitt driving around kind of aimlessly. You have Sharon Tate just kind of walking around, going to see the new movie that she's in. And yet you learn so much. The story's driven forward by all these seemingly sort of random activities and these meandering sort of plot details. And I really felt like as, as I was watching it, that like this is a new level of screenwriting that he's really reached, a real pinnacle. And the way he was able to both present this world, you know, of uh, 1969 Hollywood, mm-hmm while at the same time kind of presenting this this fantasy of what he wished would have happened. Um, yeah. I love, I love the ending. I love it, too. We won't yeah. spoil it for you, but there's both a, a sense of what was great about Hollywood, the best parts of Hollywood, uh, a sense of what went wrong with Hollywood. I think the film kind of steers away from that be, as a way of kind of you know, giving it that fantasy sort of ending, that that fairy tale ending, because it is a fairy tale. Yes, it isn't realistic. Mm-hmm. In it's that called sense. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In exactly. That sense. Yeah, yeah, and it, it fits into that sort of fairy tale uh, genre in, in that sense. But it has incredible performances. The production design is great, and it, I just kept thinking, like, oh yeah, there were good people back then. Yeah, you know, <laughs> there are good people still going, and in, in a sense, it's kind of a rallying cry to recapture the good parts. Yeah, and run forward with them rather than dwelling on uh, or focusing solely on on the bad parts, which yeah. there are plenty. You know, I'll agree with you there, man. Uh, it was a fantastic movie. Uh, my number two, significantly higher than yours, is Joker. Oh, okay. I love Joker just because, again, it's such an amazing performance that I think boosted my opinion of it. But I love how bleak it was. Right. I just, I love watching him climb up those stairs with Hildur Guthnadottir's score just in the background, just making me feel a little miserable. Mm-hmm. And I just love how it's captured all the populist anger that I think is fueling a lot of people these days. And in that sense, to me, I think this is the defining movie of the Trump era. Right. You know, and I think that's why it's so important. I think this is an important movie because Todd Phillips said, hey, this is what I think is going on now. And I'm going to make a movie of that. Right. And that's why I was a little annoyed by all the criticism and all the incels and the whiny white guy stuff, because I don't think any of that takes into account that that this is just a movie of modern times. Yeah, well, it's it's a sad statement that, you know. America can't make a movie like this without these kind of critics yeah. responding this way, without this sort of backlash coming yeah. towards it. I mean, like we said, Joker was fine, yep. 11 nominations, but 
it is sad that we can't have you know, articulations of class consciousness and class rage from each country. Yeah. It seems like, you know, right now in this current environment, we have to turn to other countries and their version of it because we can't do it in our own country without, <laughs> or in America or Canada, without this sort of backlash coming about. Right. Whereas I'd like to see every country's articulation of that and yeah. kind of like see where we all meet in a way. Right. Um. Uh, which is just a way of saying, like, Parasite's great. Uh, I wish that Joker would kind of be appreciated for what it is rather than facing this kind of absurd backlash. Yeah. You know? No, I agree with you. Yeah. Your number two? My number two is Marriage Story. Okay. Uh, Noah Baumbach made an incredible film this year, I think is best. It has incredible performances. And if you want to talk about a movie which is totally opposite of the zeitgeist mm. in a lot of ways, it's this. It's yeah. two very, you know, wealthy people who experience a divorce but it's so well done and so moving that it's impossible not to be moved by it yeah um i was just blown away by how incredible the performances were by by adam driver and scarlett johansson and you know just how amazingly noah bombach was able to capture this real part of uh, in his life Mm -hmm. and um because it's based on his marriage with Jennifer Jason Lee. That's right. And apparently she saw the film. She read the script. She yep. liked it. She um, approves of it. It doesn't villainize her. It doesn't villainize him. It kind of presents this really uh, fair but equally tragic portrait of a marriage dissolving. And I think because it is fair, it's all the more tragic because you realize, hmm, there's really nothing they could have done to make this work out. Yeah. Um, this is my number one movie. Marriage, oh, okay. Story. marriage Story remains my favorite movie of the year after... After everything that we've talked about and after everything we've seen. Right. And this, to me, is such a triumph of writing and of acting. There's that marvelous fight scene where that they have where none of it was improvised. It was all Noah Baumbach's words. Right. And the the thing that is most heartbreaking to me about Marriage Story and what makes it so effective is I kind of get the feeling like neither of them want this. Right. I've seen divorce movies where... One partner really wants it. One partner says, you know, you did this or this isn't working. I want a divorce. Right. right. But I, I, this is a this is a movie where neither of them really want this. And it's right. so complicated. It's so so human and it's so sad. And at times it's so funny. Right. At times it, it's such a great watch and you're laughing. And at other times I just feel terrible. I feel yeah. terrible watching this sometimes. But that, that apartment argument scene, mm, wow, is yeah. yeah. And whenever they showed it at the Academy Awards, I just thought, oh my god, I've got to watch this again. Yeah, this is just such a, a fantastic movie. Um, wonderful performances by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. Both of them, to me, giving career-defining up to now anyway performances. It's one of those movies that makes me wonder, I don't know if anyone involved in this will ever make anything as good again. Right. It's Noah Baumbach's best. I don't know if he'll ever write anything as good as this again. Right. Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson, I don't know if I'll ever see a performance by them again where I think, yeah, that was Marriage Story good. Right. So that's why I think Marriage Story is my number one. Yeah, I think it's a great choice, and it could have easily been my number one, except for the fact that a movie called The Lighthouse came out. Yeah. Which, for me, just ticked off every box for what makes a great movie, which is it's daring, it's artistically daring, it's aesthetically daring. He does something which on paper seems ridiculous. Mm-hmm. He takes two guys in a lighthouse and they slowly go insane, and I think, and it's black and white and it's made to look like an old silent film because yeah. it's shot in a 1.19 aspect ratio with, uh, I guess, older lenses. 
I mean, it has a recipe for a movie that, as we said on Kelly's podcast, it's a big no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it works so well. The yeah. way he's able to balance between these incredibly funny, ridiculous, absurd moments and these terrifying moments where, you know, it almost seems like, you know, one of the characters is being cursed and maybe the audience by extension is being cursed too. This uh, <laughs> Melvillian language, which just really brings you back to a certain point in American history where it's like, you know, there was a lot of insanity in the air. Yeah. You know, it reminded me of Moby Dick and just the insanity that's lingering throughout that novel. Um, I think it probably also has a special place in my heart because it was shot in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, which is not far from where I grew up. Oh, yeah, that's right. And there's just something about that place, the landscape, which is very unforgiving, but also it's full of mystery and superstition. You know, Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who kind of grew up around that area, and especially in the past, where there were a lot of superstitions floating around. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that movie captures that feeling of of mystery and superstition that can be sometimes egged on by the elements, by solitude. And, you know, the music was good. Technically, it was brilliant. The attention to detail, as you mentioned, by Robert Eggers. The fact that he was able to pull this off. And I also kind of love the fact it was totally ignored by the Academy. Yeah. Oftentimes, it makes me feel like, I'm on the right track if the Oscars aren't acknowledging it. <laughs> it's it's also that horror thing, too. It's kind of a psychological yeah. horror movie. And that's another thing where you're talking about aesthetic conservatism, too. Right. We're not talking about the look of a movie, but we are talking about the genre of a movie, too, in that the Academy just does not like horror movies. Right. You know, Silence of the Lambs, 30 years ago was right. the last time that that it won, maybe even the last time a horror movie was even nominated right. for an Academy Award like that. So I think The Lighthouse might be a little bit too close to horror for their taste as well. And I I wonder why that is. I wonder. Well, that's why I say like one of the sacred cows of the Academy, one thing that's untouchable is, uh, you know, aesthetically daring films. And and especially if they're not in the genres they like. So, yeah, yeah, no surprise it didn't win, but it's also why it's making my list for the best film of the year. Yeah, well, uh, like I said, whether it was nominated for Oscars or not, it was just a really great year. Absolutely. I, I look through my I look through my list, and there are other movies that didn't make my top ten that I'm not going to uh, delve into. But they I'm going to mention Les Miserables, Midsommar, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, The Irishman, Knives Out, The Cave. That rounds up my top sixteen, for instance. Right. Those are all great movies. And then Jojo Rabbit's my seventeen. Yeah, I would add Emma to that list. I know certain people yeah. didn't care for it. I just loved how wildly over the top and inventive it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would add that to the list as well, but I totally agree in a fantastic year for film. Yeah. Oh, it also had the souvenir by Joanna Hoff. Yeah. That was a great film. That was a good one. That was named by the British Film Institute as the best movie of the year. Excellent. But there you go. The Academy Awards are over. And until then, until next time, uh, we'll see what 2020 really has to offer. It's going to be an exciting time. And if you liked what you just heard, don't forget to like and subscribe to us. We have a lot of other content coming out. And the way YouTube is working these days, sometimes you always you don't always get notified of the new content that we put out. So you might want to hit that bell, too, at the bottom and, and just make sure that you get notifications for each video that we put out. And we have other videos in our library, too. We've talked about Twin Peaks and Blade Runner and Paul Thomas Anderson. So be sure to check those out, too.